on Radio Boise on 89.9 FM, Caldwell Boise. Um, and I'm here to, I don't, I don't know what I'm saying right now. <laughs> uh, it, we're, we're the week before spring break. So I think we're all like, just kind of trying to make it through, right, Luke? Uh, yeah, just to be clear, we're not on spring break yet. And this is the big tent. Just so <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, I don't think I said we're on the big tent. That's uh, all right. I'm sure our, our loyal <laughs> fan base knows exactly what's going on. They're all shouting at their radios right now. <laughs> I'll, I'll get the the intro right this after we uh, hear later in the show. Um, but I'm Jackie Kettler. I'm your co-host here for the Big Tent. I'm at Boise State in the School of Public Service. I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler, who's running the boards today as well. So thank you, Luke. Um, and then today we have a special guest with us, which ended up being perfect because it's the National Social Work um, Day, Appreciation Day. And our guest is Nikki O'Reilly um, at the Boise State School of, Public, or School, School of Social Work. Well, I'm off to a roaring start. <laughs> well, Jackie, did you remember drinking coffee today? I know. Uh, so, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And so um, maybe as an introduction, just talk a little bit about what, um, so it's National Social Work Day. Um, What is social work? What are social workers? So social work is a pretty broad field. Um, So it is one of the helping professions, but you can encounter a social work in many different areas. So interestingly, the show prior was talking about foster care and A lot of foster care and child welfare workers certainly are social workers and oftentimes that is the first thing that people think about when um, when you mention that you're a social worker but often you will encounter social workers in healthcare settings um, in both juvenile and adult corrections um, also out in the community in um, some of the different community services around serving the homeless population um, in the Department of Public Health um, excuse me Department of Health and Welfare. And uh, so just many different spots, uh, schools, so on and so forth. So really anywhere where people might need um, assistance navigating uh, difficult patches in life or navigating resources in the community, you will typically find someone who is a social worker. Some very important roles um, in in community um, for, especially for certain populations, very important. Mm -hmm. Um, And and for us, coming from the school of public service, very important public service um, careers. Um, So thank you so much for joining us to chat today. And what area um, do you particularly focus on in your research? Um, So in my research, so I have specific focuses for teaching, but then in um, my research areas, I primarily focus on issues of health and wellness, particularly uh, food insecurity. Um, so that is what I focus on. Fantastic. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about that some today. Okay. And what is food insecurity? Um, so basically, well, I'm going to start with what food security is, because okay. that is actually the starting point. So food security is when um, people have the necessary food so that they can maintain an active and healthy lifestyle. Um, so that's sort of the gold standard of what we should all be able to achieve. And um, so then food insecurity has different levels. So you can be marginally food uh, marginally food secure, which means that you still get enough to eat, that there's no real shift in your diet, but that you have some stress and anxiety around being able to get your food, right? So this occurs for families who maybe run out of food, who, who get close to running out of the foods that they prefer, um, or that they have patches where they're short on money and they're not sure if they're gonna be able to make it, but they still do. They don't have to necessarily 
necessarily change any of their eating habits, but they still have the stressors around it. So that's an important category. Um, but when we talk about people who are food insecure, these are folks who either um, change their diet. Uh, so that means that you're buying cheaper foods, right? So you're getting, you tend to be buying cheaper foods that are um, calorie dense, but not nutrient dense. Um, and those mm-hmm. folks are food, um, have low food security. And then there are folks that have very low food security. And um, those are the folks that are actually having a decrease in overall caloric content. Uh, so those, those two combine together to count as what we consider food insecure. Interesting. So there's a yeah. component of access, but also nutrition that, yes. that comes into this conversation. Yeah. And, and it's important to distinguish food insecurity from hunger. So hunger is um, a symptom of food insecurity because you can you go through several stages before you get to the point where you don't have enough to eat and you start to experience hunger. So they're not necessarily the same thing, but there are a lot of different um, different difficulties associated with it all the same. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think that's something maybe I didn't, you know, necessarily think about was I think in food insecure, like not necessarily having food or struggling mm-hmm. to always have food, but not there's also that element of um, buying cheaper, less mm-hmm. nutritious food. Yeah. Um, and like kind of your situation, the community can access also impact kind yes. of that food insecurity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so really, the resources that you have in your community in terms of where you can shop often will play a role in in how in your food in your home right so if you live in a community where you have limited access uh, to supermarkets that have more affordable fruits and vegetables that can be um, that can play a role in your ability to maintain a healthy a healthy diet and is that what we would sometimes we hear about food deserts? Yes. So it's a little so when we talk about a food desert, it's a little more complicated than just not having a supermarket in your community, but that is one of the primary factors. Uh, so it varies based on if you're in an urban community or a rural community. So we look at um, low access to supermarkets within one mile for urban communities and within 10 miles for rural communities, which is particularly important in a state like Idaho where we have considered uh, rurality around the state. Um, but then it also factors in uh, income levels in the community. So if you have a high proportion of residents within an area that um, are considered low income and also vehicle access, a high percentage of communities that have uh, lower access to transportation. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about the urban rural mm-hmm. elements. I yeah. it's probably like a bias from my point of view. I always just think about urban areas and yeah. think about food insecurity or like access food deserts. And yet I grew up in a rural area where we were like thirty minutes from mm-hmm. a grocery store. So I actually have experienced that distance right. from from having you know kind of ex- you know, the grocery store or whatever. Yeah, no, but that's an interesting element because of course like in the rural areas it's harder to get there, but it's also like less options. Um, yeah. and so it's basically like, oh wait, if the one grocery grocery store is closed on Sunday, you might not eat that day, right? Yeah. And so there's stuff like that that I guess factors into that in the rural areas that's kind of interesting. Well, and, and also choice within those stores as well. So for rural communities and smaller stores in rural communities, oftentimes 
um, they have limited capacity to carry fresh fruits and vegetables, mm. understandably, um, and sometimes they're at a higher cost than if you were able to access a larger supermarket or a supermarket chain. Yeah, and I, I mean, again, to, to say this, like going, you know, camping or up into the woods yeah. with, with my wife, you know, we're in the mountains, we're always like, all right, let's make sure we stop by Costco on the way before we mm-hmm. leave because we know we're not going to be able to buy all of this stuff. And if we do, it's yeah. going to be very expensive when we get there. Um, and so we always try to plan that in before we leave. But I guess that's not really an option for people that already live there because they're not mm-hmm. going to drive the two or three hours to Boise. Sure. And especially if they lack transportation. And then so it becomes even more complicated. I mean, it's complicated for uh, families living in rural sure. communities anyway to access those foods. But it becomes more complicated when you incorporate income and transportation as well. Right. I mean, it's going to vary by urban areas, but there may be public transit options, yeah. which you just don't tend to have as much of in rural areas. Sure. Yeah. Um, And there's some great programs in Boise, too, where they bring, um, so there's mobile farmers markets where they bring fruits and vegetables into the community, um, which is easier to do, not saying it's easy, but it's easier to do, structurally speaking, in in urban communities than rural communities. Sure, yeah. I mean, these are just, you know, some interesting issues that I really hadn't (laughs) considered before. But in a state like Idaho, where you have growing urban areas, but still Mm -hmm. a lot of rural areas, it's really important to think about the kind of different challenges those different Mm -hmm. areas would have yep interesting um so i think we're going to take a quick break we're going to come back to talk about kind of the broader implications um that food access issues can can bring for individuals or in in the community um so return um we're going to be right back with nikki o'reilly from the school of social work you are listening to krbx 89.9 fm caldwell radio boise bringing community to the radio all over the Treasure Valley. Welcome back to the Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX, Caldwell, um, Boise. And um, I'm your host, Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler. And uh, we have our guest, Nikki O'Reilly from the Boise State School of Social Work. Thanks for continuing to be here with us. Absolutely. And so in the first segment, we were talking about, you know, what is food insecurity and food access issues like food deserts and things. And so obviously one of the major concerns with this issue is people being hungry. Yes. Um, and, but what's the broader implications of whether, you know, being hungry or just kind of generally concerns about these issues? Sure. So there are actually a wide variety of consequences or other social issues that are connected to food insecurity. And a lot of them, they actually have a reciprocal relationship. So one of the key ones that um, I talk a lot about or do some research around is um, psychological or mental health. Oh, interesting. Um, So we know that stress, uh, stress or anxiety and depression um, both have a strong association with food insecurity. And um, really it it can, you know, there's a a lot of chicken or the egg arguments around those particularly looking at depression in that um, depression can make it difficult for someone to uh, do all of the things that you need to do to maintain food security, such as consistently be able to work, consistently be able to food shop, prepare meals, so on and so forth. Uh, and then on the flip side, food insecurity can exacerbate those um, those issues as well, um, meaning that when you're constantly kind of butting up against trying to navigate getting enough to eat, um, it can decrease your overall mental health and well-being, as well as um, diet, the quality of your diet can contribute to that as well. 
That's really interesting. We think a lot about the kind of the physical or the, mm-hmm. you know, nutritional elements, but how that figures into and connects to mental health yeah. is really interesting. And one question I meant to ask you earlier, and I'm not sure that, you know, if you have a general estimate about like the size and the percentage of the population that may be food insecurity? Yeah. So approximately 12% of all households in the United States, wow. uh, 12% of all households in the United States, so that's about 15 million households wow. experience either low food security or very low food security. So that doesn't even include the folks who have high levels of stress around obtaining their food. And we also know that those rates of food insecurity go up drastically for certain subpopulations, particularly um, households with children, especially very young children, for reasons like it's more difficult to uh, either work when you have to deal with childcare or pay for childcare and paying for food. Also um, uh, for... um, African-American households, low-income households, single female-headed households, those groups all experience higher rates where in some of those groups are up to like 30, 40% of them, those households experience food insecurity. Wow. So, I mean, this isn't a small population no. we're talking about. This is a pretty, I mean, this is a very large social yeah. issue. I mean, like yeah. issue facing um, population in U.S. Yeah. Interesting. And, and of course, we all work um, at Boise State. And so um, how does this kind of figure into education? Is it a concern for whether secondary or college students or kind of what's going on there? Sure. So, um, you know, it's a concern across all levels of education. So K through 12, as well as getting into the university level. Um, So I won't go into the K through 12 stuff, but you can find a lot on how that really contributes to um, difficulties with learning and behavior and so on and so forth. But Um, It's also really important to look at among university students because the rates are really high. So most studies that look at food insecurity among university students find it to be around 40%. Wow. So there's some variation around that, but they're all around four out of 10 college students are experiencing some level of food insecurity. And that has a host of other issues that goes along with it. Sure. I mean, I would imagine it's hard to focus. Yes. Um, Yeah. Would be one issue um, if you're hungry, but also like... Like, what do you prioritize? Yes. Yeah, so there's, like, the prioritization around school or work when you need food. Um, And I think that that's particularly important when we look at Boise State students, as a lot of them do work outside of being uh, students. Um, And then also prioritization around what do you pay for, right? So um, housing insecurity is uh, hugely problematic for people who experience food insecurity, especially Um, especially college students. You know, it's interesting because particularly when we talk about food insecurity, we definitely don't talk about the college student population a lot. But the one time this did become a major issue that we talked about is when it was dealing with uh, college athletes, right? Uh, Yeah. um, And this was a year or two ago. But I mean, basically the, the... arguments were and that NCAA has very strict rules about what benefits athletes are mm-hmm. allowed to get. And so those strict rules were about eating times and what could be provided. And so a lot of these, you know, division one college athletes that work yeah. out and train all day long, uh, were not like getting the intake they needed to balance yeah. that out. Um, and so that actually caused, uh, I mean, which led to some policy changes at the NCAA level. Okay. Um, particularly, uh, I think there was a couple of high profile basketball players that really spoke out about it. Um, and they were headed to the NBA draft and they're just like, look, I, I, when I was going here, I couldn't eat. Like I went to bed hungry, yeah. um, and that's definitely not something that we expect to hear out of that population, right? That if you're going to, you know, Duke or UNC, and you're a basketball player, and you're going to bed hungry. Like I think that's something that shocked people. Uh, but it's definitely like we don't talk about this enough with college students because it's definitely a big problem there, but we just don't recognize it as being one. 
No, and when we talk about college students, there's like that old joke about the poor college student and eating ramen, and it's it's kind of become a trite joke when we think about it for students, when in all reality, it's a huge problem for their well-being, and when we think about it at the university level, we're really concerned about our students coming in, going through, and doing well, and it's hard for them to do that when they're not getting enough to eat, whether it be in athletics or their academics. Yeah, and to link what you were talking about earlier with the mental health problems, right? I mean, uh, as uh, part of this, I think, is because we're getting more cognizant of mental health problems among students. But, I mean, certainly there is a high degree of things like depression, anxiety, stress that go on with our undergrad and graduate students. Yeah. And so, I mean, cl- clearly, like, food insecurity, poverty, housing insecurity, all these things are just making it worse and making it more difficult for them to complete their degrees in mm-hmm. timely fashion and go out and, like, enter the workforce. So there's kind of like this uh, you know, bubbling problem that's kind of interconnected in a lot of different dimensions. So how do we help address this issue? Um, so, you know, so one of the things recently is so the Idaho Policy Institute and then uh, Wendy Jaquette from the School of Public Service did do uh, in her policy class, they worked on or, or one of her uh, public administration classes, excuse me, worked on a project uh, where these numbers come from for us to understand more about Boise State. And it also led to them transitioning um, and uh, providing more resources in the Dean of Students around food. Um, so that looks at like things like food banks and emergency funds. But in all reality, we need to be thinking more broadly about how we support students who come into universities that are at risk financially in general, right? So how do we better support students um, who are maybe low income or who are kind of struggling, um, even in middle income families where they're maybe not getting the same kinds of supports, but they still have, it still creates that need when they're trying to pay for college. Well, and you mentioned the housing. I mean, we live in an area, you know, in the Treasure Valley, yeah. housing's expensive. And so, Extremely. I mean, I, for students, it could be really challenging, high rents, yeah. and then you have to pay rent as opposed to um, Mm -hmm. getting groceries or whatever. Yeah. That's interesting. And so, oh, sorry, Luke, were you going to? Oh, I was going to say, you know, this also ties to the other big conversation that we have around college students, where student debt levels, right? Yeah. Um, and so we're just charging more for housing and we're charging more for food. And then we're wondering why these students are graduating with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And then we're like, well, you're supposed to be a poor college student. And we're like, well, that debt most of the time um, that students incurred, and I can say from my personal experience, it did not, like my debt did not come from paying tuition. It came from living uh, yeah. because when you're not working, you have to pay to live somehow. Um, and so that's where a lot of students end up borrowing money for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a little bit earlier, we were talking kind of more broad, you know, food insecurity or access issues in communities. So in general, what are some policies that are being proposed to try to help or approaches to help reduce um, this massive issue? So a lot of the programs that we traditionally think about around food do a lot to protect food insecure families. They certainly don't eradicate it. So SNAP is especially important for working families, um, so particularly families who would be in that working poor category. Um, So even though uh, some of those folks might still be food insecure, it prevents them from getting into that very low food security where they're experiencing hunger. Um, And then also um, 
for families, uh, schools play a hugely important role in maintaining nutrition for children and the family overall to some extent because it frees up some of the resources. So that includes uh, breakfast programs, school lunch programs, and summer meal programs as well. And, and of course, that's the type of programs that don't exist at the you know the uh, higher in a higher education. Yeah, exactly. So you graduate high school, maybe you are able to go to college, yeah. but then you don't have you don't those have same those programs. supports when you come on to university. Yeah. Wow, some really interesting things, um, some, you know, interesting policy issues that I think for a lot of us, we don't think a whole lot about, except for probably if we're experiencing mm-hmm. these issues, in which case it's a very major impact on your daily life. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, anything else that you um, would like to add, Nikki, about on this topic? Um, <laughs> We've covered a lot, so I'm kind of just like and, throwing you on the yeah, spot. There really is, there's so much more that we could talk about, but I think we kind of covered the main things. I think it's just important to know that, um, you know, food, we all need food, no matter what, we all need to be able to eat to survive and that um, hunger isn't the only way we experience a lack of access to food. Yeah, that's a great point. And also your earlier comments about how interconnected it is to mm-hmm. general well-being and ability to kind of live life. Um, yeah. So I think those are great kind of points to take away. Well, fantastic. Well, we're going to take a break. Um, we'll come back to discuss um, some current political um, developments. So please come back and join us here on The Big Tent. Hi, I'm Mississippi Marshall, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Community radio for Boise and beyond. Welcome to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler, um, and I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler, both of us at the School of Public Service at Boise State. And we continue to have our guest, Nikki O'Reilly, with the Boise State School of Social Work um, program. Um, which And how long have you been at Boise State, Nikki? Um, so this is my fourth year, so I came in the fall of 2015. Great. Is that, yeah. Luke, is that when you started, too? Uh, actually, started the year after you then, so oh, okay. 2016. Great. So you came in between us. I'm in my gotcha. fifth year. So, um, well, well, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about some current political events, um, but Nikki's hanging with us in case you'd like to Great. join us as well. Um, so, Luke, what's kind of some big news happening? Well, I think the, the biggest story from today, as we were talking about earlier, is the uh, Senate uh, voting to approve the same legislation that the House uh, approved last week, which is to basically... Uh, I mean, say that Trump can't use a national declaration to uh, adjust DOD funding to pay for a border wall. Um, So to back this story up a little bit, I mean, this was part of the budget shutdown um, that Trump really wanted billions of dollars to build a budget wall and they couldn't work out a deal. Um, They managed to pass a budget without it. And so Trump signaled weeks ago that he would use an emergency declaration to basically redistribute funds from other programs into this border wall. So after he did that, the House almost immediately passed legislation that said... Which does have a Democratic majority now. Yeah, so they passed uh, legislation that said, nope, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. We don't like it when you do it. Um, and so the big question, because Republicans controlled the, the majority in the Senate, was whether or not this was going to pass the Senate. And lo and behold, it did. Um, I think to the shock of some and the not-so-shocked of others. Because um, the Senate is still Republican-held. Yeah. Um, so this means some Republicans are voting against Trump. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, of course, this this and Trump has already said that he won't sign it, which means it'll be vetoed. Um, And so process wise, um, if he vetoes this, which we assume he will, this goes back to the to Congress, um, which they'll then have to use a two thirds majority to overturn, which they don't have in the Senate. So this will likely not become law. 
it will be interesting, though. Like, uh, you know, will the vote stay the same or will it change a little bit in the Senate? Right now, they're not at override um, the threshold, but it would be inter- it'll be interesting to see once it comes back. It if that changes. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting elements here, right, is it's not just uh, Democrats versus Republicans. It is um, Congress versus president in a lot of ways. Right. So uh, there's been a lot of literature, a lot of research about how presidents have uh, really pulled a lot of power away from Congress in the last couple of decades, um, particularly as we look at a lot of uh, really active presidents that have done things. And uh, you can look back to Obama and his use of uh, executive orders. Um, and so the question was whether or not Congress was, was going to reassert themselves here, because um, essentially uh, Trump is telling them, like, wait, we don't actually need you for the budget. Uh, I'll just do whatever I want to with this. Um, and so Congress has kind of stepped up and said, no, 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 you we're still part of this big system um, and you need us to agree with what you're doing. So uh, it's definitely interesting dynamics and, and whether sets the stage for the next, I guess, few years of the Trump administration and how those power dynamics are going to look. Sure. And it's interesting, right? Like we kind of expect that push and pull with the Democratic House, um, but to also have the, the Republic, you know, have some Republicans in the Senate join in with the Democrats um, to also push back here is interesting. Though, to be fair, like it, it's Democrats and Republicans in Congress who have said, argue that the president now has too much power. It's not necessarily a partisan um, issue, though. It does help when it's your party in charge. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and of course, I mean, uh, something that we, we've talked about time and time again on the show is how long that uh, uneasy marriage between uh, our president, uh, Trump, and then uh, the congressional Republicans is going to last. Um, and so for the most part, uh, this will be Trump's first veto. I mean, again, if he uses it, which we expect him to do. Um, and that's because that the congressional Republicans and Trump have been very closely tied and they have seen each other as, as I would argue, um, as kind of mutually, you know, getting each other's agenda through. But with this, it seems like that marriage is starting to break down a little bit, um, that there might be some challenges and maybe there's some congressional Republicans that are not willing to go along with everything. And I think that's a pretty important trend to think about, um, particularly leading into the 2024. God, are we already there talking about? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Wait, no, no, I'm sorry. The 2020. Yeah, well, we're, yeah we, yes, we've got I've the 2020 done, first. Yes, but. I'm sorry. 2020. God, why, I could not do math this way. It's, it's it. spring break. Um, yeah. So is that part of the semester? But the 2020 elections, right? Yeah. And so what all this means heading into there, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, we already. You know, whether or not a sitting president faces strong primary challenge, a, a strong primary challenge is always kind of an interesting question. Trump's not especially popular, um, but there has been a good amount of support for him from congressional Republicans. So if this is the sign of some interest of uh, congressional Republicans starting to think about challenging him, would be interesting to see. Um, one thing, since we've got our guest Nikki here, um, you know, during the budget shut or during the government shutdown, mm-hmm. um, we talked a lot about the impacts on federal government workers. Um, presumably, that time period raised some concerns about food insecurity for that population, in addition to the population that wouldn't be getting their kind of the resources or government programs that they rely on. Well, one of the things that fortunately did happen is is that for the most part, people still were able to get their benefits during that shutdown. So that still went through. However, it had a you know pretty considerable impact on folks who do work um, for the federal government, especially people who work for the federal government that 
are doing jobs where they're not saving money, they're not making a lot of money, where they're really truly living paycheck to paycheck. Um, and so, you know, those folks are already living in, you think about people who are like janitors at the museum and they work for the federal government living in one of the most expensive cities in the country um, and suddenly they don't have an income, right? The, that's yeah. a pretty different thing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, thankfully budget shutdowns don't happen that frequently, but they seem to be kind of happening more frequently yeah. um, as polarization increases. And so the concerns and, and, and what it, you know, like for people, I mean, from what I understand, not that many Americans have a healthy enough savings, um, regardless of kind of their yeah. station in life to tide them over for a couple of weeks without a job. So it really does raise some concerns mm -hmm. for these populations. And of course, uh, and going back to food, food insecurity, I mean, this was a big deal, deal with SNAP, right, with the uh, the way the yeah. payments came out. And so for those that don't know or didn't follow the story was that they managed to get some of the payments processed early, mm -hmm. um, but there was still a gap for most people that are like 40 days within payments. And if you can imagine, like, even if you did technically get all your money, like trying to budget food over that and money over that yes. amount of time. So there was definitely a stories of runs on grocery stores. And when I mean by runs, like people literally bought up all the products within a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And so you had grocery stores that were had empty shelves. Um, yeah. And so that kind of had widespread implications for a lot of people. Yeah. So they the, the whole putting them out early, but it created weird uh, timing on everything. And so it kind of messes up everybody's system around how that all works, both from the store end and, and the the recipient end, the shopper end. Interesting. It's just, I mean, so much, there's all these issues that come along that we don't necessarily think about and such an important issue of food security for a broad population mm -hmm. in the U.S. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's great to have you on, learn more about thank these you. important topics. Um, Luke and I are going to go rest some so that we can be a little sharper <laughs> in the future. Uh, and we will not be ne back for next week, unfortunately, because uh, of free of Tree Fort. So everybody should uh, listen to music and, and come downtown and not worry about public affairs for the week. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, please stay tuned for more Public Affairs Thursday. Um, again, we're the Big Tent on Radio Boise, 89.9 um, Caldwell, Boise.